Welcome to the Common Good Hour, hosted by Drew Reynolds, Roger Zaglupe, and Carrie Rebens. In this podcast, you'll learn about the ways nonprofit and social sector professionals are tackling the big problems of our time, so you can improve your practice and advance the common good in your community. Welcome to the Common Good Hour. I'm Drew Reynolds. And I'm Roger Zaglupe. Today, we are excited to kick off our three-part series on creating a culture of encounter in nonprofit and social sector practice. We'll begin the series by inviting Karen Mariner, Jeff Lax, and Suzanne Boyd of the National Multiple Sclerosis Society as they share about their work supporting people as they navigate the everyday challenges of MS. It's a great interview, and we can't wait to dive in. We're also excited to announce a new start to our podcast. And what we're going to be doing here now is really spending some time at the beginning of our episodes before we dive into our interviews with nonprofit and social sector leaders. We're going to start to share with our listeners, with all you out there, um, some practical pieces of, of advice and of recommendations and learning and knowledge that you can take and put right into practice in your work wherever you are in the nonprofit and social sector. So we're going to start off with these episodes with just practical tech takeaways and something you can use in your everyday and practical work. And I know that's so important that when I wake up in the morning and I turn on a podcast and I'm driving into work or I'm going for a walk or we're working out or whatever your routine is when you're looking for a podcast, you know, it's, you're looking for something that's interesting and something that you can learn from and that you can take and, and put into your everyday. And so that's what our goal is with this is to really try to give you something that you can walk away and use. And it's going to come up with different themes each week, but that kind of focus on different aspects of work that you can put into practice each day. But before we dive in, we wanted to take a minute to read a review left by one of our listeners on Apple Podcasts. I've loved listening to this podcast. The topics are timely and relevant. Most importantly, the host, that is us, make this content exciting and inviting. So happy this is available. Now, Drew, I'm wondering if that exciting content is really the 80s and 90s trivia. It's really, Roger, it's people's love for Back to the Future, I think is really what it is. <laughs> it's people's love for Back to the Future, <laughs> for Pearl Jam, for Nirvana, for a Tropical Quest, for everything and anything 80s and 90s. Uh, absolutely. No, it's great. Well, it's really so important for this podcast, for uh, folks like you out there who are listening to take a minute and to review our podcasts on Apple Podcasts. If you can take a minute out of your day, Head on over to Apple Podcasts. You can do it right within the app and then write a review for the Common Good Hour. And maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've never written a review for a podcast and it seems kind of daunting, but trust me, it's actually pretty simple. All you have to do is um, if you have the podcast app on your phone, go ahead and log into the podcast app. And then if you type into the kind of like find the common good hour, you know, if it, probably it's saved and at the top of your list, but if it's not, you know, you type it in there and click common good hour. Um, and then you'll find, and you'll scroll down. There's a little subheading that says ratings and reviews. And then under that, you can go ahead and click on that. And it says, write a review. And there you can um, add stars to the rating and then a, a little review of our podcast. And it would be so helpful for our podcast. And we would be so grateful if you could do that. Um, as many of you know, who are out there listening to podcasts that uh, writing reviews for podcasts and is really in critical to helping us to build and sustain this podcast. So we can keep delivering these awesome episodes for you guys um, and continue to build and, and make this podcast work. So we really appreciate you taking the time, those of you who have already reviewed and for those of you who um, might be able to do so with this episode in the following. So thank you. 
And please, if you are listening, please share. Share with your friends, share with your colleagues. If you are a teacher, a professor, or an instructor, um, share this with your classroom, share this with your students. Um, if you are in the social sector, uh, share this with your team, share it with your supervisors, share with everybody. There are episodes in here that may be threaded into the work that you're doing and that you're providing for the community. And so we definitely hope that this is meaningful and we really appreciate it if you share, listen, and review. All right. So then to kick off our episode, what we're going to do is spend a little bit of time talking about uh, encounter, which is such, I think, a foundational and important concept and word that is something that I really think about and reflect about all the time in my own practice as a social worker, as somebody who works in a nonprofit, and as somebody who consults with nonprofits. I think that ultimately so much of the work that we do comes down to this very fundamental concept. And nonprofits that are successful and programs that are successful and interventions that are successful do this well. And those that do not do this are oftentimes not successful or are oftentimes really kind of missing the mark on what they're trying to do to bring about the positive change in the communities in which they are working. So what's this word encounter all about? Well, ultimately, I'd say the first thing to think about with encounter is that encounter is an opportunity to build a relationship with somebody else. And that's the foundational, most important thing in nonprofit social practice is to say, we're going to take this as an opportunity to build a relationship with somebody else. And a lot of times in nonprofit work, that building of a relationship with somebody else is somebody who's not necessarily in your own circle. It's not necessarily someone who's your best friend, somebody you went to school with. Um, somebody who you already know very well. A lot of times it's somebody maybe who you don't know very well and somebody who's had a different or unique experience that's that's someone different than your own. And so encounter, which begins with relationship, also calls us to uh, build relationships with people who are outside of our own circles, outside of our own kind of world. And so I wanted to share a little bit too about how I think about this in my own work. I, as you know, I, from the last episode, I'm a program director at Child Spring International. And when I first started in that work, you know, it was clear to me that there was so much that I needed to learn about global surgery. There was so much that I needed to learn about how the organization worked and how things operated within that organization, um, as it was all very new to me. But the things that I think back on in my first month or two of working at Child Spring were the phone calls that I had with the host families who were hosting children who came to the United States and them sharing with me their experiences of what it was like to accompany a child through surgery and how it was challenging at times to accompany a child who didn't speak the same language that they spoke or how they would have conversations with medical providers that sometimes it got confusing on what the care plan was and how they were supposed to respond and care for their child at home. These are things that I learned so much from that I couldn't have learned from in a book. I couldn't have learned while staring at a computer screen, um, but only came because you know, I was trying to reach out to build those relationships with people who ultimately were so incredible and so critical to us advancing the mission of our organization. So thinking about you, Roger, too, like what are some of the ways in which you've had experiences like that in your practice where, where relationship has been so foundational to the work that you do? Well, Drew, I think that uh, relationships are the core of all social sector work, um, whether you're a social worker or, or a helping professional. I'm not sure if I'd mentioned this to our listeners before, um, but I'm affiliated with an organization 
called Kindermorn. And uh, for those of you who don't know about Kindermorn, Kindermorn is a, a just an incredible organization. They provide grief support uh, for individuals who've experienced uh, loss and um, children who've experienced the loss of a sibling, of a, of a parent, of grandparents, of a family member, a close friend friend um, and parents who've experienced the loss of children. And I've been primarily working with parents who've experienced the loss of, of uh, children. And so, you know, when you talk about relationship building, you're absolutely right. There's so much that I've learned, I've learned from parents and, and from beautiful individuals who I provide uh, uh, grief support groups for in this environment where relationships are really difficult because nobody knows that pain of having lost a child unless you've gone through that experience. And so, you know, parents who come to Kindermorn, um, they have that connection. They have that common denominator. And the common denominator is having that experience of losing a child. And that's a trauma. Um, the numerators are different. They all come from different uh, background situations, uh, socioeconomic status, whatever that that's the numerator, but the denominator is, is, is the bond, uh, that unfortunately has brought them to Kindermorn. And so that's where I've seen true and deep, meaningful relationships, um, happen, not only between the parents, but also between the facilitators and the families who come in. So, so that's, that's my, uh, bird's eye view of the strength of relationship building. Yeah, and I think that you know what what's common or what strikes me in the two experiences that you and I shared with both Child Spring and with Kindermorn is that those relationships were that were so foundational to the work were made with people who were receiving care um, or who were volunteers with or an otherwise sort of like you know receiving the service provided by the organization. And a lot of times, you know, I. I I come, I talk about this with my colleagues all the time, you know, let, let's try not to get ourselves caught behind the computer screen. And there's a temptation, I think, in this work to say, hey, you know, I'm going to send that email, I'm going to, you know, fill out that grant application, I'm going to fix my website, I'm going to reach out to my, to my donors and supporters, you know, and do that all through a computer screen. And then, you know, maybe now we're all in the pandemic now. So we're also like zooming with our colleagues and our, our um, you know, our colleagues at work. And so there's, this sort of feeling that we can do a lot of the work of an organization from behind a screen. And I think that certainly in COVID it's, it's different because we kind of have to be behind the screen at this point. Um, but it's not really about the screen. It's more about, you know, are we building relationships with the people who are being served by, or who are the sort of focus of the mission of an organization? And do they have a say in this sort of how, a program or an intervention or a service is going to be delivered. And I think that that's a really critical piece that is sometimes forgotten in this practice. And there's one final thing I think that's really important uh, to share today before we dive into our interview, which is that encounter and relationship invites us into transformation. And so this is one of those things that I think surprised me when I was early in my career. I think I, I kind of came into this work thinking, I want to do something useful in the world. And I'm excited about that action of doing things and the results and the product of that work, whatever it was. It's a volunteer activity. It's a service trip. Um, you know, when I was early on in, in college and in, um, in high school, when I was kind of volunteering at that age. And then when I became a social worker and started doing this more professionally, taking it on in my more professional roles uh, through work. But I think that, you know, 
we have this notion of sort of going and bringing change in the world and in our communities. But I think if, if we think we're going to change the world, we also have to be open to the recognition that encounter also invites us to experience how the world will change us. And that that transformation is going to happen to us in different ways that we may not necessarily anticipate or understand at first, uh, but that we have to be open to and to allow it to happen to allow us to grow as uh, practitioners and professionals in our work. You know, and I think transformational change occurs um, when we keep an open mind and step outside of our, our own world or step outside of our own box. You know, um, you know, a great example, Drew, I want to share is uh, my daughter, Hannah, has been uh, volunteering at Camino Community Center. Um, it's been about, I think, over a year now. Once the pandemic hit, it, it kind of it really just stopped a lot of things and she recently has started to go back and and it's just really as a father as a parent and it's just really neat to see your children have that that worldview of in order to make change you have to step outside of that comfort zone and you know to see your you know your daughter do that and and really become involved and and she thoroughly enjoy she thoroughly enjoys it and I don't know. It, it's just, it does make me proud, but it, it makes me feel like, you know, she's going to be okay, you know? And then to see her, you know, her younger brothers, see her do that. I'm like, they're going to be okay too. Well, I think it also speaks to their dad, who's just an amazing example as well. But um, so props to Hannah for the work that she's doing out at Camino. And I think each of us has opportunities in our lives to, to say yes to different invitations to relationship and encounter that will transform us, that will call us to meet people who we would not have otherwise originally met, and that help us to recognize the importance of the social bonds that bring us all together. And that these things are critical. You know, you can go onto a website and they're going to tell you how to set up a 501c3. You can go and figure out how to start a new program by like launching a logic model or setting goals. And they're going to tell you all these really important things that are, that are important to starting an organization or a new program or a new initiative. But more than any of that, before you even begin, a conversation today invites you to think about ways to begin this work focusing in relationship. So thank you for listening. As we started off our conversation on Encounter, we're going to continue this conversation over the next couple of episodes. And we'll also have a chance to continue this conversation during our interview on this episode with Karen Mariner, Jeff Lax, and Suzanne Boyd of the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. We're very excited about that. And before we dive into the interview, though, we have to do our 80s and 90s trivia. So hang on tight. And here comes Betcha Don't Remember. Betcha Don't Remember. Bet You Don't Remember is the 80s, 90s trivia game from the Common Good Hour. We ask the question, and you, the listener, test your knowledge of the music, movies, and culture of the 80s and 90s. So, hey, Roger, can you ask our trivia question this week? Certainly, Drew. So, you may remember the incredible NYC trio known as the Beastie Boys, who encouraged all of us to fight for your right to party and took us all on an intergalactic journey. Before making it big as a rock rap band we all grew to love, the band originally started out in the early 80s as a hardcore punk band before releasing what would become the first rap album to the top Billboard charts, Licensed to Ill. Betcha Don't Remember 
that Charlie Rose interview in 2007 when the Beastie Boys stated that the word Beastie is actually an acronym that stands for what? Roger, I don't know. These these questions are getting a little tough. Do you think do you think our listeners are going to be able to get this? I don't know. I think I mean, we I think we might need to up the ante. Look, if you can get this question without looking it up, you get two stickers. I'm saying this time, two stickers. <laughs> two, they oof. yeah. Do y'all better not look this up. So if you think you know what the acronym for Beastie stands for, post your answer to this episode's social media posts on Twitter, Insta, or Facebook. We'll randomly select one respondent who will receive a free Common Good Hour sticker in the mail. And don't look it up. Don't look it up, y'all. We're gonna we're gonna do the honor system on this. <laughs> no cheating, right? No cheating. So on our next episode, we'll reveal the answer to this trivia question and then ask you another. And of course, before we wrap up, we also have to give you the answer to last week's question, which was, bet you don't remember the number one song of 1997, which was rewritten as a tribute to a very famous person who died that same year. Roger, can you tell our audience the answer to last week's trivia question? I sure can, Drew. So I, if, if I had a piano, I would do an intro, but I don't, and I don't know how to play the piano. We so, would get sued anyways, Roger. So I, I would. So <laughs> the answer is Candle in the Wind by Elton John, which was rewritten in 1997 to remember the late Princess Diana. Sir Elton. That is correct, Roger. So do we have any winners from this past week? Drew, we actually have two winners. Wait, two winners? We have two winners this time? Two winners. Yes, we do. We have the incredible, the fabulous the queen, Dr. Vanessa Drew Branch of Charlotte, North Carolina, and Chaz Wheeler from Atlanta, Georgia. Both will be receiving a sticker in the mail from the Common Good Hour. Congratulations, Dr. V, and congratulations, Chaz. Thank you both for playing. And all you listeners out there who are playing along in the car and you were thought to yourselves, you know, maybe I know the answer to this, but I don't know. I just, I don't know if I should put it on social or not. I'm telling you, don't miss your opportunity this week. This is a chance to get two Common Good Hour stickers. Respond on social. Um, tag us at Common Good Hour. We would love to see your responses to this week's uh, trivia question. And thank you all for playing. Bet you don't remember. Bet you don't remember. Today, we are excited to welcome three guests who are each involved in supporting individuals who are living with multiple sclerosis. First, we have Karen Mariner, Vice President of MS Navigator Experience for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. In her role, Karen leads a comprehensive nationwide strategy to empower people to solve everyday challenges of MS. Karen holds a master's degree in social services from Bryn Mawr College and received her bachelor's degree from Temple University. Karen, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thanks for having me. We're so excited that you're here. And we also have Jeff Lax, who is the current board chair of the Greater Carolinas chapter of the National Multiple Sclerosis Society and who has served on the board of trustees since 2006. Jeff has been involved with the MS Society since 2001, raising nearly $200,000 to help find a cure through athletic activities like Bike MS and the London Marathon. He's a husband, dad, and business leader in manufacturing and distribution companies. Jeff, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And last but not least, we have a wonderful individual, a dear colleague of all of us here, not only at the Common Good Hour, but at the Multiple Sclerosis Society and everywhere. 
here in the state of North Carolina and in nationwide, probably internationally. We have Dr. Suzanne Boyd, Associate Professor of Social Work and a program faculty member in the Health Services Research Doctoral Program at UNC Charlotte. Dr. Boyd's scholarship focuses on child, adolescent, and mental health services with an emphasis on children in residential care, as well as the impact of health disparities and social determinants of health on persons living with multiple sclerosis. Dr. Boyd, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thank you for having me. So we are just so thrilled to have three guests today. And so we'll ask kind of each of you questions, but you're all welcome to join in and, and add uh, comments to different questions as you think uh, or as you see appropriate. So we'll start off, Karen, with you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work and the work of the MS Society? Sure. So I'm thrilled to talk about the work of the MS Society. I've actually, in May, it will be 20 years since I joined the Society. And this is actually the 75th year of the Society's founding. Our vision is a world free of MS, and our mission statement reflects who we are and what we're going for. And that's People affected by MS can live their best lives as we stop MS in its tracks, restore what has been lost and end MS forever. The MS Society creates awareness about MS. We fund research. We advocate at the federal, state, and local levels to advance policies that benefit people affected by MS. We create connections. We provide direct services, supports, and resources. And in my role, um, I lead a team of professional staff that provide one-on-one -on -one direct services support, provides people with timely and relevant resources and information and education so they, they can make informed healthcare decisions and be connected to the long-term resources that they need to, to have a good quality of life. And sometimes when needed, we provide more intensive support services such as case management. Um, in 2020, we took calls from over 40,000 people affected by MS um, through our MS Navigator program. MS Navigator is one way we provide support to people affected by MS. We also provide connections to self-help groups, peer support, um, and a number of different educational opportunities, as well as Facebook social learning groups. So really what we're about is providing connections and information to people in ways um, we meet people where they're at is what we say in whatever way is most useful and relevant to them in their lives. Thanks for providing that information. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I would like to ask uh, Dr. Boyd if you can explain a little bit about uh, multiple sclerosis to our to our listeners, because we may have some listeners who are unaware of what MS, of, of what multiple sclerosis is and how it impacts and affects individuals and families. Sure. Um, MS is an autoimmune disease for which there is no cure. Um, it impacts over a million people in the United States, which within the last year is twice as many as we thought initially in the United States. MS also impacts children. There is a diagnosis of pediatric MS, which I was alarmed when I learned that. Um, the, there are four types of MS and the majority of individuals diagnosed with MS are diagnosed with what's called relapse remitting MS, where individuals may experience periods of times where their symptoms flare up, fatigue, muscle spasms, whatever that might be. Um, the good news, the great news is that in the last 10 years, the um, medical advances and disease modifying therapies that are available 
to help individuals living with MS have a better quality of life have skyrocketed. Um, and 20 years ago, that was not the case. So the science just gets better and better um, as time goes on. So it sounds like MS is a very challenging disease for individuals to try to navigate life. Um, there are, are perhaps things that um, uh, come up for them that, you know, I, I uh, kind of overlook or even take advantage of, right? I don't think about it from that perspective. And, and if you can share a story with us, if you can walk us through what it is like for somebody to live with MS, um, just w- w- like a day in the life, for example. It's going to be different for everyone. If someone experiences a more, uh, if their disease progression is more long-term, um, a, a day in the life might be, it takes them 30 minutes to get out of bed because their muscles are not working at that point in the morning to get up and to move around. Um, all the way to someone who might be newly diagnosed or has been diagnosed for a while and has very few relapses and less impactful symptoms. Some individuals live with a high level of pain um, and still manage to work. Other individuals notice minimal impact on their daily activity, activities of daily living or quality of life. Um, And the course varies by person. Thanks for sharing that with us. You know, again, uh, I encourage listeners, we encourage listeners to, um, to do your own research on things, right? For example, if you're interested in finding more about uh, multiple sclerosis, um, our guests will provide that information for us later. But, you know, we definitely encourage folks to just do your own research and, you know, really, um, it's sometimes really hard for to understand what is that somebody else is going through, because if we haven't been you know, in that situation, in those shoes, it may be a little bit difficult, but that doesn't mean we can't do our own research to, to have empathy and to, um, you know, sit in that space with people and, and really be supportive and, and advocates. So we appreciate the work that y'all are doing. Um, Jeff, I'd like to ask you a question real quick. Um, if you can share with us uh, some new programs or services that the MS Society is offering uh, that, you're exci- that you're excited about currently. Sure thing. I think first, before I answer that, I'd like to echo what Suzanne said about the advances in research and therapies for MS patients. When I joined the board in 2006, there were, I think, two disease-modifying therapies or two drug regimens available to MS patients. Today, there are approximately 20, which is huge for MS families and MS patients. Um, You know, to go from having limited choices to get some function back in your life to now having 20. Um, it's really been life-changing and the MS Society through its funding of research has, has really been the main driver globally for, for that. They partner, the MS Society partners with international uh, researchers. Um, there's an MS International Federation, the MS Society of the U.S. leads that. And so there's been just a, a tremendous focus on research, which has really developed a lot of drugs um, I just got off a call earlier this evening and one of the researchers who was on the call said he thinks we're in the fourth quarter of MS. So we are very close to a cure. Um, There's been a lot of news lately about a potential vaccine that's come out of COVID vaccine research. So there's there's a lot of great stuff going on um, in the MS world that'll hopefully end MS, which is our goal ultimately. But back to your question, Um, you asked about what kind of new developments really excite me. And, um, you know, Karen talks about Navigator, 
Uh, I think the Navigator program is one of the most exciting things going on, and she's leading one of the key initiatives. Um, when you're on, when you're a board member, we offer what we call an MS Navigator Ride Along, and so you have a chance to kind of sit in the room with somebody who's uh, a navigator specialist who's taking calls from people with MS. And I got to do that and picture somebody with um, two large monitors. They have a lot of data on those monitors. Um, if somebody calls in with a, a question about healthcare, how to get health insurance, um, they can type in a search and, and a, a module opens up with healthcare information. If that person on, if the navigator doesn't have the information, there's a team behind the scenes and, and this navigator was able to reach out to somebody kind of who wasn't even in the room in, in Denver or someplace else. There's a call center of experts around the world who are servicing the navigators. Um, and so just two or three people called in and she's able to juggle several calls at once, handle everything from accessibility for, from, for living conditions to drug therapies to health insurance issues. And so the navigators, I think, are really, really huge advancement for people living with MS. They have a lot of information at their fingertips and a lot of smart people and a lot of money invested by the MS Society to, to make this happen. And so that, to me, is one of the most exciting things going on. Yay, technology, right? For sure. <laughs> That's amazing. And, one, and if I could just add one one thing to, to what Jeff sh just shared, one of the... Um, one of the things that I always tell people that's really important to know is it doesn't matter where you sit in the United States, you can reach an MS navigator. Um, it is in all 50 states, in every community, it is a nationwide service. Um, and we are ready and able to provide that um, customized one-on-one -on -one support um, really from every parts of the country. Well, it's incredible to hear about both the new research and work that's being done to advance towards a cure as well as the services and programs being provided to uh, a company and walk along individuals who are experiencing MS and provide them the resources they need to live fulfilling lives. So I kind of want to come back to these questions. I love that we're talking about, you know, direct interactions with, with individuals experiencing MS. And, you know, today at the beginning of our episode, we're focusing on the idea of creating a culture of encounter within the nonprofit sector. And so what we mean by that is that to do good service work, to build the common good, as in the title of our podcast, um, one has to begin by building relationships. And that often involves going outside yourself, outside your own circle, um, outside your day-to-day -day interactions to encounter individuals on the margins or otherwise excluded from society. So uh, I'll open this, up, this question up to anybody here. Um, could you share a little bit about how you're building relationships and what that looks like in your work um, to be rooted in encounter at the MS Society. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to start. I think, you know, from an MS Navigator perspective, some of that happens organically when people call in. Um, they, uh, especially facing challenging situations due to systemic issues, um, such as structural inequalities, and we see people who are marginalized because of those things. So, through, through a conversation where we start from understanding kind of a, what, that, what that individual's hopes and dreams and desires are, really understanding who they are as people holistically, um, I think creates, a, you know, just by nature of someone asking for support, asking for help, creates an intimate relationship. 
And so our navigators, again, are trained for those moments um, to really understand the why and be curious about what and who that person is and what are all of the um, experiences that they've had that brought them to this particular place. So I think that's that organic kind of opportunity that happens. And then we're more intentional reaching out or trying to engage in communities um, that may not know about the MS Society or know the resources and services that we provide and offer and really are thinking differently about how do we reach out into those underserved communities um, to create that experience and that space that is reflective of them and the experiences that they're um, living with. Um, and so we're doing that in a couple of different ways, doing specialized educational programming or ensuring that our literature and our publications are reflective of the wide array of, of people's experiences. Um, and so those are some of the ways that, that we and MS Navigator are kind of creating those meaningful connections and opportunities. I would piggyback on that and just uh, and add that, you know, I came into the MS Society as a bike MS bike rider didn't know anything about MS, didn't know anybody with MS at the time. Uh, I was um, asked politely by my wife who was an MS bike, a bike MS team captain to join her team. And so uh, did not know a thing about the disease or the people with MS, didn't know anybody with MS. And uh, I've ridden 20 straight years of bike MS. And to me, um, you know, in addition to the navigator connections, I think we as a society have focused and raised a lot of money through bike MS and walk MS. And so those are real great connections for the communities, um, for, for companies who want to have teams. Uh, a lot of companies have employees who want to give back, but they don't know how to do it. And a lot of them want to be physically active and come together as you know, a, a team doing something meaningful. And they can be on a bike MS team or a walk MS team and get really involved. And I've just seen so many people like me who didn't know anything about the disease get involved and in that you come to a bike MS ride or a walk MS walk and the energy, the, uh, the atmosphere is really infectious. There are people with MS who are on the walks, who are on the rides. And so you get to meet people with MS who you didn't ever know had MS potentially. You see people at varying phases of their disease progression. And so you can kind of see why we're doing it. And those are just very profound connections for people once they join those events. Um, in Charlotte, we have an event called the Great Gatsby Gala. We've been doing it for over 30 years. And that is a um, kind of Gatsby-esque 1920s flapper era uh, tuxedo event big band kind of a thing. And we, we bring in a different crowd for that. We bring in a lot of young people who want to go out socially. And once again, they come to that event, we have uh, a silent auction, live auction, and it, it's just a really fun time. And that, that people think, man, raising money for a mess is a fun thing because I can be part of these great events. And people, once they latch on to us, they stay on for a long time. And so I think those are great connecting points as well. I, I think I see, I can see Drew's eyes uh, lighting up right now. He he wants to be at that Gatsby event next time it happens. He he wants to dance to the big band, do the do the swing dance. I, Drew, I see that in your eyes. Yeah, you know, I think it'd be pretty fun. But I think I I think I need you to come with me though, Roger. And then, you know, we could probably figure out a way to get some '80s '90s tunes in there. I think I might be off the rules, but you know, maybe we could maybe we could do like a big band cover 
of an 80s 90s song it'll be like reverse time order <laughs> There you go. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Boyd, I know that your connection with MS is is, is pretty deep. And, and you know, the, the question that Drew had asked is, you know, about connections and building relationships. And I know that you've established a, a really healthy and strong relationship uh, with the National MS uh, Society. So, yeah, could you talk a little bit about sort of that and, and kind of what led you to this? Sure. Um, probably about 12 or 13 years ago, um, people, different people in my life um, were diagnosed with MS, kind of out of the blue, where one would never expect it. And um, I obviously, I'm, I live in the mental health world, but I also do lots of policy work. Um, that's part of how I spent the earlier part of my career. And um, I teach in the Health Services Research Doctoral Program at UNC Charlotte. I've been part of that program for 15 years. So for me, as a researcher, as a scientist, I wanted to know what is MS? How does it start? But I wanted to be involved in bringing awareness to MS. And so I didn't know anyone who worked in the field. And so I signed up for the MS Challenge Walk in 2010 in Washington, DC. I didn't know anyone and I signed up and raised money and I went and it, it's life-changing because you meet people who you've never met and you maintain those relationships down the road. And so um, I did a walk six years later. So, so starting in 2010, I you know, I sat back and just thought the privilege I sit in as a social worker and as a faculty member engaged in research in the mental health and healthcare systems world, teaching community healthcare, and the responsibility that I had to give back and to bring voice to those stories um, in the capacity that I could as a social worker and as a researcher. And so um, I kind of jumped in really four years ago. Um, I did the MS walk in Savannah. Um, I can't remember the official name of it um, and met other fabulous Sue Bolware and others. I was on Sue's team. Um, and so my interest and my ability to forge those connections grew purposefully. There are not a lot of social workers around that you figure out where they are in MS. So I just started reaching out, connected with Abby, Paige Dalton, you know, Jennifer was fabulous, just sending emails going, they're going to say, who is this person? So I've, I've been involved on the personal end, um, the challenge walks are fabulous. On Monday, think of me this coming Monday, I'm going to be walking as part of um, Abby's team in Apex in North Carolina. It's 22 kilometers. Um, so I stay involved in that. Um, but I've also just want to educate people and let people know what resources are available. And I think the intentional piece for me the last couple of years um, was that the university provided research funds to two separate, well, I'm on the third grant internally now, which we're really excited about, but to show, to purchase and show two films. One's called When I Walk and the sequel is called When We Walk by Jason De Silva, a filmmaker who um, was diagnosed with MS and is living with MS. Um, and we can show those films um, at no cost. We have a lifetime 
access. The university owns a lifetime access as long as there's no fee charged. For anyone who is interested, we can always host that. Um, and then the last intentional piece is that the Chancellor's Diversity Challenge Fund funded a research project this year for us to train up to eight students to be MS advocates awareness folks, you know, our name changes. And in the next two or three weeks, we're going to start a 10 session module where they learn about all different types, aspects of MS. And then we'll spend four to five weeks offering kind of 10 minute pop-ups for people who have questions and want answers um, just to connect them. So for me, that's the the intentionality of it and, and sharing that intentionality at research conferences. We've shared our results from the film festival at the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centers, and we shared them at Ectrum's in September. So the university has been incredibly supportive in the partnerships um, that um, I have with the National MS Society have been life-changing, not only individually, but um, from the ability to advocate and to get the word out um, about where people can go to tell their story and to get help in changing their story to have a better quality of life. You know, I think films um, can be really powerful and, uh, you know, the fact that you've been able to provide um, all communities the opportunity to have that experience through those two films that you mentioned, you know, I think that is uh, stepping forward. That, that's, in other words, for folks who aren't aware or maybe want to know more, those are great opportunities to step forward, to step into uh, the role of being an advocate, of being an ally, and being an accomplice, you know, so we appreciate your efforts in that. Thank you. So, Jeff, you know, you had just mentioned earlier um, about how some of the developments in the vaccine for COVID have led to scientific advances in reaching a cure with MS, and it made me think a little bit, too, about the challenges that we're all experiencing with the pandemic, but perhaps that that might be uh, born differently or, or, or even in more uh, a hard sort of way with the pandemic. So Karen, I was wondering if you could um, tell us a little bit about how individuals living with MS are navigating the pandemic and what are sort of the unique challenges they might be experiencing? Yeah, so we, we surveyed people with MS um, as COVID in the spring of last year to get an understanding of how COVID was impacting um, people with MS. And you know, we, the results indicated the financial toll that people were experiencing. And at first glance, you kind of think, okay, well, every, you know, many people are experiencing an economic hardship because of the pandemic, which is absolutely true. But I think, again, if you really start to think about what are, what are kind of some of the different challenges that people with disabilities face, and we're thinking about how we think about people holistically, you know, for some of the people that we were hearing from and connecting with, they were dependent upon family to augment and their social security. And so when, when their network of family were impacted, that impacted them. And so certainly there was the economic issue. There was access to medical care and healthcare services. Um, you know, luckily many states um, allowed for the coverage of telehealth services, which was significant for people affected by MS who couldn't be, get to their neurology appointments. But what we also saw, we all experienced social isolation, right? Kind of being, um, not being able to connect with family and friends. And this was really um, even more challenging for people with MS. Depression is a common symptom. 
um, for people with MS and that social isolation was heightened as a result of COVID. And, you know, the society was able to provide thankfully because of tech, you know, due to technology, virtual opportunities to help decrease that isolation and increase connections um, with peers and with other mental health supports. Um, but it, it, it was things like that. And then there were things that, you know, for those of us who are able-bodied don't think about, right? So many of us couldn't go to the grocery store. And so there was this rush for kind of online grocery delivery for a lot of people with MS who are homebound that is the only way that they could get groceries. And so you would, you know, for my local grocery store, it was maxed out week after week after week. So if you were someone with a disability and couldn't go to the grocery store and had no other means of getting food, you know, that was a challenge. And so I think it highlighted some of those things that we take for granted. Um, and we saw an increased request for food assistance, um, an increased request for a number of other things um, because of COVID. Um, but it also highlighted opportunities, I think, um, and you know certainly that we can provide telehealth services to people. We can we can get access to um, appropriate medical care. There was a story of a woman who um, her neurologist is over 100 miles away. She would have to drive 100 miles, and because of telehealth, she didn't have to do that, saving fatigue and and cost of gas and other things really greatly increasing her quality of life. Um, so COVID has, has had a significant impact on, on people with MS. And I'm sure that it's also had an impact on, you know, on the MS Society from a, from a funding or from a resources, financial resources perspective. Obviously, we've, during the pandemic, we've a lot of organizations and agencies have experienced, uh, perhaps have experienced a decrease in, in people um, donating financially. I, I think Donating of our time is great, but financial donations, I know, are also something that that's uh, a big part of nonprofits, and uh, it helps create programs. It helps sustain programs. So um, how has that impacted y'all? Because I'm sure it's it, it may have impacted you in a way where certain things may have had to shift in order to uh, have other programs continue. So we have um, lost, uh, we have been impacted financially about a third of our, our budget. Um, and, and so we have had, we had to make difficult decisions. Um, and it's also the, the additional challenges, you know, state budgets um, and local budgets were also impacted. And so those safety net programs that we rely on to help connect people to were also impacted. Um, and, and that has been a significant challenge, you know, so we rely on, you know, when I hear Dr. Boyd and Jeff talk about the fundraising that they do, I mean, first I have to say, we are so fortunate to have an incredible network of volunteers, board members and volunteer leaders, fundraisers who have committed um, so much time and energy and, and raising funds for us. Um, but it, it has taken, it, we've taken a financial hit for sure. I would just um, tag on to that, Roger, that um, the society for this year has, is not funding new research applications. Um, I was preparing a grant this summer to submit. And then at the end of June, the announcement came out because of the financial impact. They are, they're, uh, supporting the existing grants and of course, you know, honoring those commitments. So, so that definitely 
um, from the research perspective um, had an impact. I would add on to that and just say uh, to, to Karen's comment about the, some of the, the responses the society's had to make to these shortfalls. Um, I, I can't say enough about the, the staff who, had, who has left in the society. They've had to let some people, good people go. Um, people who are still here have had taken reductions in salary, not once, but twice. Um, so there are fewer people who are committed to, to doing all the work. Um, and so we as volunteers on the board are really trying to be cognizant of that and try to help as much as we can. But the, the people who are in the society have, have gone through a lot to try to keep the mission moving forward. Um, because we like to say that even though fundraising has slowed, MS does not stop for that. So we got to continue moving forward with programs and research and just some really good people who are working really hard in the society trying to make it all happen. So as we get a little closer to the end of our episode here, I wanted to ask you all, you know, for regular folks who are listening um, or who are uh, maybe new to MS, what are ways that they can get involved and be a part of the mission of the MS Society? Well, I, I think get start by giving, going to our website, giving us a call and, and just saying, how can I help? And then we'll take it from there. Um, <laughs> we're not shy <laughs> about, about helping people figure out ways that they can plug in. Um, you know, I think that they're, they're really, it's about what finding the right connection for you and, um, you know, being able to either, can you start a walk team? Can you fundraise? Do you have professional expertise, a skill set that you can um, use to help um, in, in, in the work that we're doing? Um, you know, this, Jeff talked about the staff providing support and services. We lean on volunteers as well to be able to provide support. Um, and so I think, you know, simply by giving us a call, we can, we can make the connection to the right, the right space for you. I would add on to that and say um, the MS Society um, does a lot of activism, um, both nationally. I, I think Karen said that at the beginning, nationally, locally, and statewide. Mm -hmm. Anybody can sign up to be an MS activist. You can go to the MS website and become an activist. And what that'll do is it'll put you on a, basically an email list. When there are issues in front of state legislature, uh, from North Carolina or South Carolina, or even nationally, you can sign up for the National Public Policy Conference. They'll send you a note and you can basically email your senator or congressman uh, and tell them that you support the MS Society in this endeavor. And it may sound hokey, but it really does make a difference when you get hundreds and thousands of these emails to your congressman, they listen. And we've been very effective. Um, you know, nationally, I've been to the public policy a few times in DC. And we've heard from more than one representative that when they see the sea of orange, because everyone wears an orange scarf or necktie, when they see the sea of orange coming, they know the MS Society is there. And so we sort of have a brand. They know we're coming. We're always organized. We, we, we welcome new people to the activism network. And I think that's a great, easy way for people to get involved and learn more about it. The um, public policy conference is March 22nd and 23rd this year coming up. Um, anybody can register. As Jeff mentioned, you can attend one session or all of it. And I I think it's from Eastern Standard Time. It's from two to five on Thursday and Friday, both days, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
And I would just tag on to what Karen and Jeff have said about the opportunity um, to plug in, put on your walking shoes. Mm -hmm. I'm never afraid to, to ask folks for support or to say, come walk with us. Um, a little bit goes a long way. It doesn't have to be a million dollars. It doesn't have to be $100,000. Every dollar makes a difference in the lives of people living with MS and in funding research possibilities. Yeah. Thank you all so much for sharing that information. And, you know, we're hopeful that our listeners um, well, again, as I mentioned earlier, just do your research. And if you know, if you want to make a difference, this is a, a, an, an excellent and incredible organization to learn more about and to be involved with. So um, thank you all so much for that. So I'm going to, I'm actually going to shift gears here real quick. And I'm going to, um, we're, we're at this part of our podcast, one of my favorite parts of the podcast, um, because I get to I get to ask my 80s and 90s uh, questions, right? And so we're gonna um, we're gonna put on our 80s and 90s hat here. We're um, uh, I'm excited about this question. Uh, thought about it earlier, and and this is for all three of y'all, right? Mm -hmm. So my 80s and 90s question today is: What 80s or 90s movie would you like to see remade? And I'm I'm saying this because I know that they I don't, they're not remaking Top Gun, but you know they're sort of bringing they they were they're bringing it back, and it's not going to be the same as the original Top Gun. But what '80s or '90s movies would y'all like to see be remade, and why? That's a tough question. There were a lot of great movies in the '80s and '90s. Mine actually probably would be Top Gun. I was in high school. I remember that. I was visiting a friend at UVA my senior year of high school. So I'll take Tom Cruise again. I think the movie Maverick's coming out. I don't think Tom Cruise is aged. <laughs> no, not at all. He has not. Um, I will, I would probably say, I would love to see The Breakfast Club remade. Ooh, that's a good one. With a more inclusive cast but i think that some of the messages still resonate and um molly ringwald and judd nelson and emilio estevez and ali sheedy and anthony michael hall all must make a cameo appearance yeah. in the remake for it to be truly magnificent so i'm gonna go with the breakfast club that's a good choice <laughs> I guess it's my turn, huh? Uh, what say you, Jeff? <laughs> well, the, 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 challenge, the challenge here is that, um, as Suzanne said, there were so many great movies. And great movies, by definition, should not be remade because they were great the first mm -hmm. time. So you, you risk screwing up a good thing. Um, boy, that's, that's hard. Um, you know, some of, the good, some of the great movies I think of are like Silence of the Lambs, um, and they're trying to do that as a series now, which I think is not working out too well. Clarice, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> a Few Good Men, back to Tom Cruise. That's oh, a, hmm. That could be a great one to be redone. Yeah, um, that'd be interesting. That would be a good one. Maybe have Jack Nicholson come back as a cameo as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Is he still alive, by the way? 
<laughs> See, I thought you were going to ask the the favorite movie, and and I was I was thinking about this. Do they want this by genre? Do they mm. want this by you know cheese level factor? Because <laughs> that could go in a lot of directions. Yeah, not through y'all a curveball. I was going to go that right, but I threw a curveball. <laughs> so, so Roger, I'm going to make you answer the question this time because you always ask it. So, what what movie would you have remade? Oh man, why did you say that? <laughs> give you some time to think and i'll share mine how about that okay go ahead so i would love to see the movie uncle buck remade because i just love john candy i think he's hilarious um and i love the story and the character of uncle buck it's just a really fun and sweet story and i got a lot of laughs out of that so i think that one or maybe like um one of the robin williams movies i mentioned that in the last podcast but there's a couple that i think could be great remakes but all right uncle buck what about you roger so I agree with Jeff. I, I think that, you know, a great movie, there's some untouchables. Like you just don't touch those movies. It's like I would say Back to the Future is a movie you just cannot touch. Right. Although part of me maybe wants to see it like a remake, but but my other part is like, no, because you just don't touch Back to the Future. Um, so, man, but I'm struggling because, <laughs> all right, I wouldn't say this. I'm going to cheat. I wouldn't say that this would be a remake but I would be interested to see all the, get as many of the crew, the cast together, Goonies. Goonies is just like the <laughs> ultimate, like you can't remake Goonies, but I would love to see like a where are they now Goonies where they go on. And I, I've heard they were talking about that at some point. I don't know where, where it ended up, but like, where are they now Goonies? And then like have them go on an adventure like in their age now. So it's not really a remake, but mm-hmm. that would be that, awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you know, just that. made me think of, of like the Sandlot too, which I think could also work in a very similar <laughs> oh, way, you know, but I do agree with Jeff. You just don't touch great movies and you just leave them alone. <laughs> you leave them alone. So this was a trick question. <laughs> what was a trick question? <laughs> I appreciate y'all playing. <laughs> So Karen, Suzanne, Jeff, it's been so great to have you. We've enjoyed this conversation and um, getting to know more about MS and the movies of the 80s and 90s. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. It was fun. And again, for our listeners, that was Karen Mariner, Jeff Lax, and Dr. Suzanne Boyd. You can connect with our guests on our note page at www.commongooddata.com slash podcasts. And you can follow the MS Society on social media at the handle at MS Society on Twitter, or just search MS Society on Facebook and Instagram, and you'll find them. Thanks again, as always, for listening. The Common Good Hour is produced by Common Good Data. To access the show notes and learn more about our speakers and guests, navigate to www.commongooddata.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe, rate, and review our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Spark dialogue with us on Twitter. You'll find us at the handle at Common Good Hour. We look forward to continuing our conversation with you.